In terms of the way that we can visibly change our society for the better, um, transport, public transport. And I think the reason why socialism and, and progressive politics and transport tie together is because it's the, it's the most obvious physical manifestation of social, socially leaning policies. And socially leaning policies just means policies for people, not individuals. Remember, HS2 is just a government body. They're, they're, not, a they're not some private company earning profit. It's just they are part of government. So what that means is government needs to be held to account to make sure that all of the ecological, all of the environmental promises made in favour of HS2 are held. Hello, my name is Cassius Smith-Fraser and welcome to Amplify FM, a podcast from the local grassroots media platform Amplify Stroud. On this episode, I'm joined by our guest, Gareth Dennis, an engineer and writer specialising in transport systems. He is a sustainable transport advocate and regularly appears on television and radio explaining engineering and transport ideas to a broad audience. We will be taking a look at the controversial transport project High Speed or HS2, exploring the environmental, political and economic dimensions of the surrounding debate. We're recording? Yes, great. Hi Gareth, thank you for joining us. Hello. Um, so we're here to talk about um, a topic that has been in the news quite a bit uh, over the past few weeks uh, due to um, some climate activists occupying tunnels uh, in front of Euston Station and it is the notorious uh, controversial HS2 project um, and I came across um, an article that you wrote in Left Foot Forward um, the other day, which was quite thought-provoking on a few levels. Um, and I, I wanted to reach out to you because Stroud is a place that has um, quite quite a long history of eco-activism and there's a lot of stuff around HS2. And I thought that it would be interesting to get your input into that debate. Um, now, there's lots of different ways to sort of uh, come at this uh, because there's different different um, aspects of the project that people uh, have issues with. But I thought um, maybe one of the more interesting ones to start with was that uh, Alex Hearn wrote an article where he nicely put it that um, one of the problems with HS2 is that the high speed is a bit of a marketing problem because what hs2 is actually doing is not so much about the speed it's more about the capacity so could you talk a little bit on that yeah sure it's um yeah it's one of those situations where for whatever reason that you know we already had a high speed one and so it kind of felt sensible to call our next high speed line high speed two um but the consequence of that is that everyone sort of uh, so so I, I'm kind of of the mind that call a shovel a shovel. So the name isn't so much the problem. It's more that the marketing that came behind that, and, and in, indeed it's not just the marketing, but the um, all of the energy by uh, you know government politicians, people in HS2, none of them really understood what the line is for. They just knew the name, and they knew because the way that government modeling, you know, business case modeling is set up, that looks at the journey time. And so special advisors and therefore the MPs and the ministers they were informing just have that journey time thing. So for a long time, that was the only benefit that people talked about. But if you go right back to the earliest documents of where High Speed 2 was being talked about, Network Rail did a load of documents back in the late 2000s talking about it. And the thing that they cite as being the one of the major benefits, arguably the main benefit of a new line, any new line, is this thing called released capacity. So it's not so much about capacity on the new line, but it's about the capacity that the new line releases on the existing railway network. So I'll just very quickly explain that, as quickly as I can, kind of using my standard sort of descriptor of what HS2 is all about. So um, basically, Britain's railway is full, and the reason it's full is because it's a it's kind of a jack-of-all-trains and a master of none, if you like. So 
by that I mean you've got uh, all sorts of mixtures of different service patterns. So you've got uh, you know local trains, you've got regional trains, you've got freight trains, and then you've got the worst culprit of all. Um, so all those different services getting in the way of each other. But the worst culprit of all are the long distance services. And the reason why they're a problem is because in order that you can have the local stopping services, they're actually useful to people. Um, on the majority of our railway network, which is a two-track railway, trains can't overtake. So you have, um, in order to have the 125 mile an hour trains running freely at 125 miles an hour without stopping anywhere, you need to leave a gap in the timetable so they don't catch up the stopping trains. And that mean, that gap in the timetable means that you've got quite an empty railway. Now, magnify that across the whole country with all of our services, like the one, you know, I, I live in York, I can get a fast train from York down to London, takes an hour and three quarters. But... That hour and three quarters is very fast because a load of all the intermediate service stations on the line between here and London don't get a good service. You know, Retford, Stevenage, uh, you know, some of these stations just get a rubbish service because they're all, all they're not getting loads of trains because the fast trains that run nonstop from York to London force them uh, kind of uh, force that those uh, those gaps in the timetable. So HS2 is all about taking those long distance services putting them on their own railway line and allowing all the trains on the existing railway network to bunch up more closely together, giving you the leap in services that are actually important to people, the services that people really use, which are the local ones, the ones that serve, you know, your intermediate stations, your all the sort of smaller stations that aren't on the on the intercity network, if you like, but actually have a lot of trains running through. Another way of looking at this is if you go and stand in like, I don't know, a station like Adderley Park in Birmingham or... I don't know. Like it's actually it's similar on some of the lines north of Stroud in that you've got um you know you've got the cross country services that run up towards if you go on the main line you've got the cross country services running between Bristol and Birmingham, and there are lots of small stations that, that that don't get served by by those trains either. But if you you know if you're somewhere like anywhere between kind of the line between Coventry and Birmingham is a really good example. But up in the north it happens all the time as well. You stand on a on a, a platform of one of these intermediate stations particularly the ones in, in kind of approaching the main city centre at peak time. And you, you'll maybe get one or two trains that stop at peak time. Meanwhile, you might have 12, 16 or even 20 trains not stopping and flying through at full speed. Those are the not long, long distance ones on their way out to, you know, down to Birmingham or up to London or wherever it happens to be. Um, and it's those trains, once you get those on HS2, all of those can be stopping services. So you get a an order of magnitude leap in capacity on the existing railway network. And that's what it's all about. So that was a roundabout description, but hopefully that makes sense as a way of explaining sort of what that problem is. It's a good overview. And it's sort of... Uh, the, so one, one of the other um, parties that sort of chimed in on this over the past, uh, I think, year, last year in January... The New Economics Foundation um, has has been putting out some stuff um, around HS2, particularly focusing on cost, but also uh, they talked to they they looked at some of the sort of key themes that have come up in other areas such as capacity and so on, and um, so dovetailing into what you just said on dovetailing that into cost and what the NEF were talking about. Mm. Um, one of the one of the things, and I think this was somewhat supported by the results of the Oak uh, Oakavi, Oakavi is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, the review. Oakavi review. Uh, yeah, uh, Douglas Oakavi's um, review uh, of HS two that I think finished was finished last year. Um, that the cost has spiraled. I think the exact words that he used were HS two cost got carried away. Well, that's what's quoted in the BBC. However. Infrastructure, large infrastructure projects, if they're strategically important, cost uh, can get carried away. Uh, but what a lot of what 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 the NAF was saying, and what some other people have been saying, is that wouldn't it be better from a sustainability point of view, from a freeing up uh, rail across the country point of view, to have taken that additional money and given it to all the different regions so that they can invest in those different. Uh, in upgrading or uh, their various rail lines and, and so on and so forth, rather than this one big project. Um, so can you speak to speak to why, what what's going on there with regards to what you just said about capacity? Yeah, sure. So there's quite a lot of interesting things to pick up in there. Um, and I'll try and remember all the different points because there's a load of really good stuff. I should have written it down, actually. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. So first of all, the NAF report. 
Um, Andrew Pendleton, I think, is the is the author of uh, yeah. kind of behind yeah. that, that NEF report. There's lots of good stuff in there. Um, the trouble with the NEF report is it's written by economists um, who only can only play with the tools that have been or kind of the information that's been put out in front of them. And HS2's main benefit of release capacity simply has not been modelled by anyone. The reason for that is that government's wonderful franchise system that, by the way, has just collapsed and no longer exists, it exists in name only. Uh, their wonderful franchise system um, uh, was, uh, if government started saying, right, well, we're going to be able to run these services in 10, 15 years, it would look like they're presupposing what that franchise, those franchise agreements would look like in the future. So they couldn't do that. So government refused and stopped anyone else from modeling what that release capacity would look like. So the main benefit simply doesn't exist for anyone to look at. So unfortunately, the, the NEF, being economists, aren't, weren't aware of that that missing link. So all they've done is say, if you could, you know, you could, all they've done is say you can achieve what HS2 can by doing these upgrades on the existing network, which is simply not true because that all they've done is enable faster running and some reduced journey times, but that would sacrifice even more local services. So the NEF report, unfortunately doesn't stand up it, do, it doesn't from a from a railway system perspective it just isn't correct it, it omits that fundamental capacity benefit that hs2 represents not on hs2 but on the existing network so unfortunately the nf report kind of falls down on that one uh, andrew P pendleton and i had a nice chat on five live about it actually uh, and and he, he kind of made the point he, he kind of stepped back and said well yeah if that is the case then yeah a report doesn't hold up but on the basis of the, of the numbers we've got in front of us this is why we've taken that approach which was fair enough so so that's the nf report on costs, um, yeah, the costs have increased on HS2. The trouble with that is the only reason the costs are kind of where they are at now is because people who actually know about engineering have finally started looking at the project. The way that projects work is that the people who first look at it are policy people, uh, you know, um, estimators. Don't Even estimators actually don't get a look. You have some, you know, you, you basically got um, people who have a very rough idea of how to cost big projects and guess uh, what the price may be. And also have a vested interest in saying that the price is lower, so that the silly treasury, which 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 are all, you know abolish the treasury, they just love to not spend money on anything. They're, they're, the role of the treasury is to not spend any money, which is backwards. Anyway, that's uh, that's another one for another discussion, I think. But the <laughs> but they're writing you know the, the these business cases are written for treasury, and the treasury don't want to fund anything. So if they see anything that's a realistic cost, they simply don't fund it. So our entire investment strategy and, and, and economic framework in this country is biased against honesty when it comes to major projects which is why we always see them escalate we always see these projects escalate in price crossrail did it high-speed 2 did it channel tunnel did it hs1 did it this is just how big infrastructure works in this country um so there's no incentive to be honest about how much these projects cost so once the engineering reality comes true you know once people like me rail engineers start looking at it we go that's a ridiculous assumption that's nonsense the railway will cost that you'll need to actually build earthworks to put the railway on xyz all of a sudden the price starts looking more realistic so that's the that's cost escalation but in terms of so then let's tackle but could we spend that money better with the regions and well firstly that money doesn't exist it's not a big pot of money that exists to be spent it's simply um it's government guilts that are borrowed for, the, for for the benefit of building hs2 if you don't build hs2 that money doesn't exist it ceases to exist so that the money's not there to be redistributed but on the flip side of that um do both is my argument when it comes to regional investment this money is free money just to, just to be clear a lot of people say spend the money on xyz you know they say things like spend the money on the nhs not on hs2 actually borrowing the money for hs2 is essentially converting free gilt cash into revenue because you pay people to then build the railway which turns into tax revenue which you then can spend on the nhs so investing in capital infrastructure is a perfect way to get more money for the nhs if you don't spend the money on hs2 you will reduce how much money is available for the nhs another point uh, HS2, I said there were loads of bullet points, so I'm going to try and tick them off as fast as I can. Um, another good point is scale. HS2 represents about between two and four billion pounds a year of money being spent. The NHS budget is around, uh, before COVID, was around 130 billion a year. So HS2's cost is just peanuts. It costs nothing. It's so cheap. People see this big number, this 100 billion pounds or 88 billion or whatever number you want to pick, and they see it as this huge figure, but it simply isn't a huge figure. To give another idea of scale, uh, Network Rail, the organization who manage Britain's railway network, um, they spend around about £7 billion a year. So they're spending over double 
what HS2's budget is annually anyway. So when it comes to talking about upgrading the existing railway network, the the, the honest answer is we're doing that right now. <laughs> that's what puts that's what that's what pays me because I'm a I'm an engineer. I design railways, but my my most of my work is for network rail. It's for the existing railway network. So you know, billions of pounds are being spent right now on upgrading our existing railway infrastructure. We are doing that as quickly as we can. The challenge, the main challenge we have is a fundamental shortage of engineers. Um, ultimately, the, the the reason why speed is an important part of HS2 is that you're not, you're, you're essentially getting three new north-south main lines for the price of one. So HS2 isn't just a bypass for the West Coast main line between London and Birmingham uh, and Manchester. HS2 is actually uh, achieving this capacity release, uh, this capacity relief on the middle main line, which is running up to like Sheffield, you know, like through the Midlands up to Sheffield and beyond, and on the East Coast main line, so up through Doncaster to Leeds, York, and Newcastle, you're, you're getting that capacity relief as far north as York. So HS2's benefit, the, the advantage of it being that fast, is that you can justify taking all those non-stop trains off the off off the those existing main lines and putting them on HS2. For even where at the moment it's pretty fast for me to get to London. If you have the trains on HS2 being slower than I can just get a regular train now to go to London, then there's no justification in taking those trains off the existing network, so you don't get that capacity relief. So that's why there's the there's the benefit in having uh, increased speeds on HS2. Although the speeds on HS2 are about the same as they are on any high speed line, it's not radically crazy higher speeds. So so on that front, uh, that's why you've got those speeds. The last thing, I think the last point really, um, I've, I've gone on and you can tell me to, to shut up if you like, but the, the last point is um, <laughs> is about um, what could you do to the existing railway network if you spent that money on it? Well, not as much, not nearly as much. To give an idea, if to, to achieve what HS2 does in terms of capacity relief, not just not just the, the speeds, but the, the, this massive release in capacity, you need to add two extra tracks to all three of those north-south main lines and some others, by the way. You'd need to be rebuilding several major city centre stations anyway, which HS2 is doing. So you need to rebuild Euston. You need to rebuild Birmingham. You, you need either a new station in Birmingham or you need to rebuild New Street massively. You need to rebuild Manchester Piccadilly. You need to rebuild Leeds Station all these, you need a new station in the East Midlands anyway, no matter what. So all of these new things that HS2 is having to do under its price tag would need to be done anyway, plus all this extra track, plus you need to be building what we call grade-separated junctions. So they're a bit like a motorway junction, but for railways. Actually, railways invented them first, the motorways copied us. But anyway, that's that's another discussion. So these motorway <laughs> junctions for railways, if you like, you'd have to build those. And there are a few of them being built right now. There's one north of Peterborough called the Warrington Dive Under being built. That's about £200 million. Imagine maybe 30 or 40 of those being built. You can start seeing the prices start rising up. And a new city centre station is about a billion pounds. So if you know, you've got several of those, six or seven of those, suddenly you start seeing, actually, mm, prices starting to rise. But the real nail in the coffin on that idea for me is, is comes back to the skills shortage, is that unlike HS2, which is quite a re it's an efficient way of using our limited resources of engineers, of people, of skilled people, not just building it, but designing it, um, you're only building one railway. To, to achieve that on the existing railway, you need that to be happening at a massive scale on, th on at least three currently operating railway lines. It would take a lot longer and it would require a lot more engineers. So it just wouldn't be possible. And we need this to be happening as quickly as possible to increase our overall railway capacity to drive modal shift away from air and road. So that's kind of, I, I said a lot there, but hopefully there's a few, hopefully I've ticked a few points and answered a few queries in there. Yes, you did. And that was, I think, that covered, covered a lot. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me, something that you said earlier on, about do both right yeah. so there's this sort of either or um uh assumption built into these questions of it wouldn't it be better to spend the money on x y or z and actually that's a question of and you you went into it there um more question of how the treasury operates how we actually fund these things and there we're actually getting into um, really political and political economic questions. Yeah, exactly. We're buying into like the credit card, the idea of credit card economics, which is entirely false. This that strange, it's a strange kind of structural idea that the that the that, that household finances and national finances are in any way similar, which they're not at all. Um, 
Yeah, and, and, and ultimately they do both things is really important because it's it's like a straw man argument that's been set up because you don't find anyone who advocates for HS2 saying don't spend the money on regional upgrades, don't spend the money on electrification. Mm. I'm a strong advocate of much increased investment in regional and, and, and urban transport networks. I am a massive proponent for railway electrification. You don't find anyone who's HS2 pro who's saying, yeah, but don't spend the money on anything else, just spend it on HS2. So it's... Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one, that. This household, this household budget austerity framing or, um, is uh, a layover we have from 40 years, well, particularly the last 10, but you know, 40 years of neoliberal hegemony. Mm. And there's something else that um, you mentioned, uh, which is kind of related to H- HS2 and neoliberalism or free market uh, free market thinking mm. which relates to the kind of the um ecological and carbon sustainable element of it which i'd like to shift the conversation yeah. into talking about now and that's about this thing about the 120 years mm. before carbon neutrality which um i believe you you wrote a little bit about where that comes from in your piece can you talk about that a little bit yeah, sure. So so the carbon neutrality thing comes from uh, a bit of a mistake. Well, it's not really a mistake. It's it's one of the good things that HS2 has done, which has been incredibly open about its process of calculations and about the data relating to the environment and about its carbon costings. The trouble is, um, well, twofold or threefold, actually. And so I'm going to list these three things on my fingers right in front of me right now so I don't forget them. Number one, um, the modeling underlying HS2's carbon costing is rubbish because it it, ha- it conforms to all of the DFT rules, which make no sense. They're hugely biased in favor of air and road, just because that's kind of what the the modelers knew when they wrote the rules. They they had no very little interest when those rules were written. Railway was it were in decline, and so there was no interest in. So anyway, so all the modeling, so the 120 year carbon modeling thing is is kind of bunkum anyway. Uh, number two, um, what data was put down has been picked up and misused by people to create an argument against HS2. Um, incidentally, that modelling doesn't include these main benefits I've talked about. Again, that that modelling only accounts for very nominal shifts from air and and even smaller shifts from road. It doesn't look at the existing railway network at all. Um, The third issue is that you have the app plane. This is what I think you're alluding towards, is that early doors, when HS2 was just a glint in civil engineering people's eyes and it was still being discussed as a policy thing back in the early 2010s, it immediately made lots of right-wing libertarian think tanks very angry. And so they were gripping at anything they could possibly grab to make it sound dreadful as an idea. And one of those things was its carbon costing. And they didn't come up with the specific 120-year claim. Um, that was that, that kind of was in a paper in 2013. These uh, All these right-wing think tanks hopped on HS2 because it's a massive public transport investment. And they hate that. They write papers about wanting to privatise the NHS. They write papers about wanting to introduce tolls on all roads in Britain. These are people who just want everything to be privatised because they've got a very strange libertarian view of how the world functions and they don't see the collective nature of civilization and its reliance on the choices that we make but also on the reliance on a stable ecosystem. They just don't see those interrelationships. They have no interest in them. And so very early on, they were grabbing anything they could to undermine HS2. The trouble is... When it was just when it was just in the policy frame, HS2 was was not really being picked up by any green groups at, at the time. It was just being looked at by by kind of policy wonks um, in in London. Then fairly soon after that, it was picked up by the the, the kind of the more well off, high earning uh, people who are going to be impacted by the line. Those who are the reason they're high earners is because they've got enough time to pay attention to sifting through the plans to then oppose it. And because they were generally little c conservative, you know, right of centre or, or or further right people living in the countryside they generally had uh, they didn't have a problem with picking up these sound bites from a right-wing libertarian group uh, think tank very they, they could grab those very easily and repeat them without any problem then you had this transition into where you had less about the you know the political spectrum became less relevant and it became more about environmentalism or or at least about conservationism so the the protection of what we have without necessarily seeing it as part of a wider picture um, I see conservationism and environmentalism as, as two occasionally paralleling, but there's a Venn diagram there, if you like. Conservationism and environmentalism are different. Conservationism is protection at all costs. Environmentalism is more pragmatic and sees the bigger picture and weighs up, you know, the, okay, that's a small loss, but it's in the benefit of a, of a broader improvement. Um, 
And so you have this transition. And so because of the, uh, so these conservational groups, again, were picking up some of these sound bites, but it was gaining distance from the source of, of this information. So they were gaining. So by the time the Green Party were picking up, they'd lost the fact that it was connected to the to the these right right wing think tanks. It was kind of something that Stop HS2 as a campaign group, the HS2 Action Alliance, these two largely kind of NIMBY created groups. Then the Green Party, which was not coming from a NIMBY stance, they were looking at the trying, you know, they were trying to conform with an idea of of, of the ecological sort of uh, an ecological purity, if you like. And then Extinction Rebellion came along. By the time Extinction Rebellion came along and advocated against the project, they had no interest. They had just totally lost the connection with where these original arguments had come from. And so this is kind of this interest. I mean, there's there's a there's a PhD in this, to be honest. It's fascinating in terms of the way that the the British environmental groups kind of kind of. Behaved. So this is where you get Swampy, who used to oppose motorways, very noble pursuit of, you know, the, the, the noble pursuit of, of British getting in the way of stuffness, um, suddenly has, been, has hijacked himself and is, and is the next generation of Swampies and are now burying themselves into tunnels under Euston Square Gardens to oppose an electrified railway. How on earth that happens, you have to look back at that at those chapters of, of different groups picking up and, and, and picking up those different arguments. So that's how this 120-year carbon thing, which is total nonsense. Um, incidentally, if anyone's curious, HS2, if you look at the bigger picture and, and, and how carbon could be repaid, HS2 can repay its like entire carbon budget within a year if you have the right policy in place to shift and alter the way people move around like 120 years just is totally meaningless as a as a measure of to give an idea of scale um hs2's total carbon emissions both from construction and operation come to about one month of uk road transport emissions so just to, just to give you an idea of scale so that so, so so what that means is if you could reduce annual road transport by like less than 10 percent you've uh you know within within however long that period is but if you can reduce uh those 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 emissions from road transport by less than 10 percent hs2 paid for itself so so the idea that it's going to take 120 years is just absolutely doolally it's just a misinterpreting of the figures but the history is quite interesting and where that how that's been picked up yeah and and um in a in a minute i'd like to to pick up on another thread there about um, motorways um, and can and talk about the comparison mm. between HS2 uh, rail and motorways and in the in the ecological context but um, first another point um, that uh, I think is has been from from most of the stuff that I've seen coming from the protesters uh, up in Euston at the moment, the thing that's been mentioned more frequently maybe than carbon has been ecological damage, yeah. particularly around things like woodlands. Yeah. They, they say that there are woodlands that are going and, and um, ecologies that are going to be uh, destroyed due to HS2 that are not replaceable simply by planting up a bunch of forests somewhere else because these are ancient woodlands and um, it takes a very long time for an ecology to develop and it's not something that you can just sort of swap in and swap out like that. And to, to be honest, from my perspective, that's one of the things that, um, that has, has given me the most um, pause for thought because it is one of the aspects of our present uh, crisis that is slightly less appreciated by people. People now um, tend to be aware of uh, climate change, but they're not aware of the wide-scale ecological, multi sort of multi-faceted ecological crisis. So, how how should we look at HS two with regards to? things like woodland ecologies and so on yeah absolutely and, and this is this kind of really this comes to the nub of it really doesn't it, it it's, a, it's a really critical thing about and it's about the ethical challenge that engineers face when it comes to this thing because it's not hs2 is far from perfect there are certainly habitat impacts and it's yeah you're absolutely right as well that people do seem to forget that there are actually two major crises going on, on the planet right now and they're they're totally interlinked but they are definitely two separate crises you have the you have global warming the climate crisis which is related to greenhouse gas emissions it's related to that and you have the biodiversity crisis which is in the fundamental loss of biodiversity on our planet 
and the two are interrelated. You know, as the planet warms up, you get more biodiversity loss. As you get, uh, as land use shifts as a result of climate change, you end up with bio. These, these are two, they're, they're interrelated, but they are separate. And so, yeah, you're right to, to pull them out and look at them separately. So ancient woodland is a designation that is used a lot in the discussions against HS2. And it, it's the one that you'll hear more than any other. Um, and the reason for that is because it's not a very good designation. So this is where I get nerdy, a different type of nerdy, because my dad is um, uh, I'm quite proud of him. He's one of the UK's leading land use ecologists. And so I talk to him a lot about this, and I live and breathe this stuff because I can't escape it. Thanks, Dad. Uh, <laughs> so um, so ancient woodland, there are two different types of ancient woodland. There is uh, snores, semi-natural ancient woodland, and there is paws, which is plantation ancient woodland. And neither of them, in and of themselves, are necessarily a measure of ecological of habitat quality of habitat value and um, where you have an ancient woodland that is also an sac or a triple si so that's a special area of conservation or a, a special site of scientific interest where you have an ancient woodland that also has those proper designations it does have value so so it's i'm not saying that ancient woodland that doesn't have those the the, the sac or the triple si designation is fair game to be demolished absolutely not but it is important to take into context the fact that ancient woodland can refer to an area that is, it can be a, a monoculture that's had very little happening to it, and indeed might certainly does not have not necessarily had trees throughout its whole existence at all either. That that's something that is uh, is a misinterpretation of that designation. That notwithstanding, HS2 impacts on some ancient woodland. There's one ancient woodland, I think, the, the ancient woodland that has the, the largest impact on it. By the way, all the felling's finished, by the way. So there's kind of a moot conversation because HS2 phase one has finished its felling. So all of the habitat impact has happened now. Um, so the protesters have kind of missed the boat on that. Uh, in any case, the, the main impact happens to Broadwell's wood. So it's an ancient woodland um, that has, the, there's, a, there's kind of two lumps of it, if you like. If you look at it on a map, there's kind of two bulbous lumps and HS2 sails straight through one of the bulbous lumps and ends up with quite a lot of, of, of woodland loss. It's quite a substantial impact. Um, however, when you look at the aerial photos, you see that quite a substantial impact is still like the width of a couple of gates and, and about maybe 80 meters long. So that's the biggest woodland impact that HS2 has uh in the in the, the currently approved parts of hs2 have it is it, on the ground it looks significant but it, in the grand scheme of things the total ancient woodland impact of hs2 is less than one ten thousandth of the uk's total ancient woodland and that's not even just direct impact of failing that includes indirect impacts like dust noise and things like that so whilst there is some habitat loss it's very very small and so it need again we have to look at the bigger picture in terms of the the context um hs2 you're absolutely right again you cannot replace some of these habitats cannot be replaced um but hs2 isn't really claiming to at the same time as as fellings what this you know in terms of if you, you measure it in, it's about the size the impact of hs2 in terms of woodland is about the size of a small golf course to give an idea of sort of scale um that's that's sort of the impact size in terms of the amount of woodland that is being planted so this is a mass conversion of private arable monoculture into woodland which is really exciting stuff this is it's hs2 is the largest kind of um kind of environmental habitat kind of habitat growth project in certainly in northern europe at the moment but in in britain's history certainly the amount of woodland that's being planted it's seven million trees and that's not seven million trees planted and then walked away and ignored no the project is being audited against seven million trees growing to maturity so they're planting quite a lot more than 7 million trees. If you've got a 60% retention rate, then they're planting probably the best part of 12 million trees. So, and, and these trees, and it's not just about randomly planting a bunch of trees. It's also that they are working very closely with a lot of very good ecologists to grow long-term defragmentation sites. So that's essentially taking lots of fragmented forest that's along the railway line and actually connecting them up, linking them with larger bits of, of new of new forest growth, of new wetland, because fragmentation is a major problem in terms of in terms of our habitats. They're hugely fragmented. So HS2 is actually doing some some really good stuff in in create they call they've got a silly name for it. And I hate silly corporate names. They're calling it the Green Corridor. What that ultimately means is actually if you look at the the kind of the the landscape mapping for HS2, you can see that they are using it as an excuse to buy up a load of currently monoculture arable land and convert it into woodland to connect up some of these disparate plots of ancient woodland. So, um, that's one thing. Of course, the bigger picture is that climate change will have an impact on these habitats as well. And so we need to kind of offset the balance of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions to, to reduce habitat loss with the 
limited immediate losses resulting from from HS2. So yes, HS2 has an impact. It absolutely does. And it, and HS2 need to be held to account to make sure that it is minimized. They absolutely do. Uh, they need to be held to account to make sure all of the promises about new habitats happen as well. And by that, I mean, remember, HS2 is just a government body. They're, they're, not, a co- they're not some private company earning profit off it. It's just they are a part of government. So what that means is government needs to be held to account to make sure that all of the ecological, all of the environmental promises made in favor of HS2 are held. Because if they aren't, then that is uh, that's a real problem. Uh, and it's something you know, that would be a failure. But HS2 has, has kind of leading the way from a civil engineering perspective on, on environmental auditing. It's kind of changing the game, if you like, from my perspective as an engineer, some fantastically um, rigorous environmental standards that have been created for the sake of HS2 and that will now, that, that kind of the industry is now having to hold itself against as a result of the work HS2 has done. So, so some really good stuff there. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to make excuses for the habitat loss, but it's part of a bigger picture. What I'd like to do now, because I think it's a good, um, that's a good, another dovetail, another segue, <laughs> is to talk about roads. Yes. And road building, the great British tradition of getting <laughs> in the way of stuff. All this tarmac that's being, that's being put 4, everywhere. 4,000 miles um, of it, baby. Oh, yeah. Are, are the um, roads for prosperity, roads investment strategy, and how that is something that even if even if you're opposed to hs2 this should be something that is also gaining the same amount of opposite same amount of opposition and direct activism right so we can kind of we can kind of talk in talk to them in comparison but also there's there's some separability there as well um if you're uh anti-hs2 so can you you mentioned you talked about you talked about this i think at the beginning of the article so can you riff on riff on that a little bit yeah, so so um, even if you oppose HS2 on, on kind of carbon emission grounds or on habitat loss grounds, for me, it's like, okay, but if you're going to... Yes, this is a national project. It's just one railway line. It's a national project. At the same time, there is a huge program. So, so people often quote the 27 billion figure for the amount of money being spent. But actually, it's, it's less than... It's about 15 billion pounds because... 10, 9 billion of that is being spent or so on, on kind of maintaining our existing roads and whatever. Uh, and, and ultimately, you do still have to have roads because even when it's electric vehicles, they need roads, blah, 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 whatever. But we know that new roads, building new roads, it's not just that the immediate impacts um, uh, as a result of habitat loss or, or construction carbon emissions. It's also the fact that we know that new roads induce new traffic onto our onto the transport system they create new opportunities for more hgv journeys more personal vehicle journeys and as a result of that further increase our overall transport carbon emissions now in britain carbon emissions from road transport are the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions that this country creates and in 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 my uh, i dare say both you look like a young lad in both of our lifespans I, I was i was born in the very very early 90s uh, i'm a 91 baby in the entire time that i have i'm only little in the entire time that i've been alive road transport or, sorry transport emissions overall in britain have basically stayed the same in that same period the emissions from our energy generation have reduced by 60%. So um, Grant Shapps, Transport Minister, just shared t- today tweeted out something from the, I think from The Economist, showing a trend of reduced carbon emissions over time and trying to put some nonsense political point to it. But actually, the trend he showed maps exactly onto the reduction in energy emissions because most other sectors, we've done very little to alter. But certainly in terms of transport, the alteration in terms of transport emissions is almost zero throughout my entire lifetime. And the reason for that is because no matter how much more energy efficient cars get, people buy more of them. We build more roads, we do more journeys. Cars have also got bigger. We've frozen fuel duty since 2010. So that's also increased the amount of people travel around. So all of these measures that have resulted in people traveling around by on road more, the amount of HGV traffic on our roads has increased which is damaging not just to costing more to maintain the roads, but also you know, heavy goods vehicles are disproportionately polluting in terms of not just greenhouse gas emissions, but also air pollution. So all these things. So to get back to my original point, yes, if you're anti-HS2, fine, but the road program is much more damaging and then has a long-term negative effect in terms of increased greenhouse gas emissions but also all the other stuff to do with road a lot, uh, kind of road traffic reliance so you know it's increasing congestions uh, congestion it's 
increasing the amount of stress that people suffer. It's knocking more cyclists off the road. It's uh, incentivizing fewer people to cycle. It's incentivizing against active travel in, and people walking around in city centers because you've got more traffic. All of these things that overall increase car and, and, and road usage drive that the new railway will not. So I even if you're saying, well, I can do both, it doesn't seem like it. They're, they're not equally weighted in my eyes. HS2 is not an equal evil to the to the motorways, even if the motorways and HS2's imp, like habitat impact was the same. Because of that lasting detrimental impact on the on the fabric of our society that increased road construction results in mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's yeah it was something it was something that when i i um read your article it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me uh, before and you, you know we all know hs2 and um, many people will also know the names of the of the road building projects but it doesn't have this it's not it's not partaking in the same environmentalist discourse right there's not the same yeah. kind of considerations towards it in the and I public had, imagination I had someone, yeah exactly yeah it's that, it's that imagination exactly as you say I, I have people all the time say oh you know hs2 is something that everyone knows about and and that's why we're campaigning about it it's like yeah yeah but hs2 is an acronym just like risk 2 is but why but i don't see any i, I don't think the green party of, of england and wales have never tweeted about risk too. They've never mentioned it once in all their tweets. And yes, I know that's not a, a, a that's, it's a litmus test. That's not a, a scientific measure, but it is a litmus test for the state of green campaign discourse in the country that risk two is just not talked about very conveniently, just not talked about. Whereas one electrified mainline railway is on all, you know, whenever there's a green story, HS2 is meant, Roger Harabin, the, the, the BBC's environment correspondent, I think every story he writes, he mentions HS2 in it somehow. He finds a way to shoehorn it in. And yet risk to, and, it, and it's that fundamental, you know, it's like, again, I had senior greens say to me, we're just following what the green agenda is. It's like, no, you have to set the agenda. You're a, you're a, a, a kind of a movement based political party. You have to, if you're not setting the agenda, you're failing this. You're absolutely failing. Risk two is, is there to be pushed hard Rishi Sunak gave everyone these fantastic sound bites to to hate on. He he stood up at the dispatch box and said proudly talked about four thousand miles of new tarmac. That's such a fantastic soundbite to just absolutely take him out on. And yet no one I never see that quote other than people pushing for HS two having to use it to make that point. So yeah, yeah. I, I realize I've become irate and I'm shaking my arms around a lot. But this is something I feel really strongly <laughs> about. It really frustrates me. It's just re really poor quality of discourse from, the, from from people who should be my allies. That's um, that's that's what that's what we're here for. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's also this is also going to be a podcast, so people can't see the the. the yeah, I know they're not seeing the waving. arms waving around. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> I, I I'm not so good at immersive podcasting. I, I kind of I can move away from the mic a bit, but that's about the most I can do. Yes. So um, that's I, I think I will wind up in a second here because we've covered we've covered a lot of ground and you've given some really i'm definitely going to go away from this with some stuff to chew on um that's sort of adjacent to uh to to this as well just in general thinking mm. about um climate crisis issues and ecological issues and transport and so on um so i wanted to maybe shift on to a an a slightly mm, not less serious note, but slightly tangential note that picks up on something that you, you said earlier and um, relates into, you know, this is Amplify Stroud is a, is a left wing podcast. We're about left wing politics. Your piece was on left foot forward. And um, I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a politics Twitter person. And there was a little bit of a flurry last week, um, I think mainly in the US uh, sort of political sphere about progressives and trains um and there was a, an article um put out in newsweek uh, it was a quote that i really enjoyed here because it was meant it was meant as a as a kind of gotcha put down um uh, and it's the real reason for progressives passion for trains is their goal of diminishing americans individualism <laughs> in order to make them more amenable to collectivism and it's wow. just like i mean yeah I was, I, there are two fronts to that one that's hilarious two yeah 
Like, yeah, yes, let's exactly, cool. yeah, exactly, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As soon as you, see, as soon as people realise that moving around as part of a, uh, as soon as people see a good public transport system, they're more likely to see that the state getting involved in things is actually quite a good idea because you get stuff that really benefits you in a way that's nice. And then all of a sudden they they have a propensity to, if not turn into, you know, if not start waving the red book around, then they are going to be more of a propensity to have a generally slightly centre left leaning and a slightly more. Um, if not democratic socialist leaning, then at least a socially democratic leaning, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I'd, I'd love to get you on again to talk about uh, railway and democratic public services and more <laughs> down more down that route. Um, but I was I, genuinely wondering um, about your your take. You describe yourself as a as a as a socialist on on Twitter, and I and I want I wanted to understand how that ties into your professional practice right mm. in and i i quoted this as a bit of a joke but i think it does also capture something right about how things like public transport are very political issues that really do give materiality to our the different way, so ways that we organize society socially. How do these two things play together for you? Yeah, so I think the the reason why transport becomes such a hot topic is because it's it's possibly one of the more obvious physical manifestations of um uh, of kind of a more socially leaning country, right? Um, so don't get me wrong, there, you can have some pretty socially conservative countries that also have really good public transport systems. So I'm not saying that good that, that socialism equals good public transport and vice versa but in terms of the way that we can visibly change our society for the better and i'm using that word very specifically our society society does exist thatcher um transport it's public transport and it's also why we're getting a pushback against things like lower you know like low tra- traffic ne- neighborhoods and, and and against you know we're getting pushback from people who feel like the world is changing around them when we're try- just trying to like give people you know open streets up it's not about closing streets it's about opening streets up for more pe- people to move around in public transport uh, and indeed not just public transport but what i like to call sustainable transport so it's not just public transport but it's also uh si- enabling more cycling walking um wheeling you know whatever it has to be it basically is about enabling people not metal boxes to move around it's about enabling a, a more people focused uh, means of, of people moving around i don't buy into the kind of the 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 more eco-fascist leanings well, it's not, okay it's not eco-fascism but perhaps the more um regressive leanings of saying we all need to just travel less because that's not necessarily the it's not the necessary solution even if we are overall reducing the amount that we we move around or indeed reducing the amount of comestibles that we require to be moved around by hgv um you still need more public transport so it's not that so we still have to expand our 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 sustainable transport networks you know there's incredibly limited infrastructure for cycling in this country particularly okay we're getting better in city centers some city centers but there's very little in the way of cycling infrastructure connecting our towns and cities still we're very much still relying on roads where we're also driving and sending hgvs so um for me and i think the reason why socialism and and progressive politics and transport tie together is because it's the it's the most obvious physical manifestation of social socially leaning policies and socially leaning policies just means policies for people not individuals that's kind of what social policy is right it's it's policy that thinks about people more broadly than just looking at individuals so i I think that's why it's it's the most obvious physical manifestation of those sorts of policies and it's an easy thing to rally against if you don't like if you don't like living in a society where other people live which is certainly in the US why public uh, there's a fantastic essay um that uh, I can't remember where where it was rec- uh, located actually it was a fantastic essay and it's probably not the first and won't be the last talking about the fact that one of the natural propensities of, of Americans uh, of US, uh, kind of people from the United States against public transport is just an innate racism is that public transport serves generally people who are traveling by public transport are often African Americans and people don't like traveling with other African Americans on, you know, and, it, and it's a frightening and scary indictment of structural racism that um, that exists in a different way to, to what it does in the UK. But that's certainly a, a feature of the feeling against public transport in in the US. Uh, for us in the UK, it's maybe more class based in that there's still a feeling that like, uh, you know, if you travel by public transport, you you've failed in, and actually you should be driving around in your nice big Beamer or whatever it is. So. 
yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, all those things are kind of wrapped up into the that feeling of discomfort from from people on the right or, or, or people on the kind of the regressive side of of the political spectrum, if you like, against public transport. Um, we've covered a, a good amount of stuff, yeah. um, and I think that the audience uh, is probably now got a lot to go away and chew on there's a few probably worth re-listening a couple of times because yeah i probably rattled off a few different things there like all in all in one go i think like the overall theme for me is like uh, when it comes to political activism when it comes to on the ground activism when it comes to some of the stuff i do which is plodding around back in pre-covid times i used to plod around in westminster and lobby it, not not because i'm some paid shill but because i somehow basically because i'm a loudmouth on twitter i get myself invited to kind of parliamentary discussions and presentations and then i kind of get to rub shoulders with mps and just point out in all of this different type of campaigning for political change for 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 me as a as a a democratic socialist uh leading person evidence evidence is our strongest ally and so and, and it comes back to the hs2 discussions it comes back to broader discussions about ecology about environmentalism evidence is our strongest ally if you've got the evidence no one can act like there's only so far people can battle against the evidence so like my last like thing i'm going to just shake my hands around that no one can see is is about evidence evidence is your ally great well that is a fantastic note to end uh, end on and i'm sure that this will definitely cause a stir in the local in the (laughs) local uh, eco politics environment but you know that's what it's all about Mm. it's about creating the debates about putting putting the different views out there so gareth Thank you very, very much for coming on and talking to us. Um, where can people best find you uh, if they want to online uh, or in print? Uh, got some socials you can plug. Now's the time. Yeah. So the the, the first and foremost, I'm on Twitter at Gareth Dennis. Um, you can find me on there, uh, and I and most of the stuff that I publish i'll retweet through there as well so yeah i pop up i pop up on in the independent i pop up on but most of the time you know various national things most of the time i appear in rail magazine one of the kind of the industry publications um the other thing is if you want to actually do do get involved in a live q a i do one every week uh, called rail natter on wednesdays uh 7 p.m you can find that so so twitter uh, and also rail natter which is a youtube thing 7 p.m on wednesdays so come and ask me questions it's a live q a and i have no control over what people shout at me on there so get involved but yeah um no it's been an absolute pleasure so it's a pleasure to join you and, and say some things uh, it's nice to be in a a, a leftist sphere because a lot of the time i find myself arguing against or indeed more scarily with uh kind of people who are not perhaps from the same part of the political spectrum as i am and that can be a bit uncomfortable so it's nice to be among friends good stuff good stuff well like i say thank you very much for coming on and i sincerely hope we'll get you back on at some point to talk about other interesting things rail related 